Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are indeed holy. And Lord, when we consider your righteousness and your justice and your absolute fairness, Lord, we are both encouraged and humbled and we hope appropriately frightened because you are not one who shows favoritism and you are not one who tolerates injustice. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts this morning and cause us to love righteousness and hate wickedness. And, Lord, we pray that through the passage that we will consider together, you would tell us the true story of the world. Show us where the world is going. Show us what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And convince us, Lord, that you are absolutely trustworthy and that all the wrongs of the world will be fixed in your righteousness. So we commit ourselves to you and we pray for your help and blessing now. We pray that you would cause us to know you. We pray that you would cause us to hope for your kingdom and live for it as a result of what we see in Psalm 72 this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning and look with me at Psalm 72. And as you turn to this passage, I would like for you to consider the phrase that perhaps, be the, perhaps may be the, the most common phrase that all parents hear, at least once their children begin to speak. If, if I were to survey the parents, my guess is that there would be consensus that the words, it's not fair would be the most common phrase heard. And we all feel that way, don't we? We all, we all recognize injustice. And we all respond to it. At least sometimes our hearts rise up and say, it's not fair. I think whether you agree with Colin Kaepernick or not, that's basically what he's saying by refusing to stand while the national anthem is played. He's trying to say, it's not fair. And what are you, whatever you think of his protests, uh, the good news in Psalm 72 this morning is that there's going to be a day when everything is fair, when no one is going to have a legitimate complaint that they have been treated unjustly. There's going to be a day when the righteousness of God is going to be brought to bear by the true king. Everything is going to be made right. And, and as I thought about this and, and um, contemplated these things, I, I couldn't help but think of the way that um, apparently in, in the, the, the grand story that J.R.R. Tolkien tells in The Lord of the Rings, the, the moment when Aragorn becomes king and, and the land finally knows a righteous and good king who's going to care for the poor and lift up the downtrodden and, and really be a lot like Jesus, that moment is just a glimmer of light in the face of an overwhelming shadow. In other words, in, in Tolkien, Tolkien's grand mythology, there was age upon age of darkness. And then you had this one ray of light in Aragorn's reign, and then it came to an end, and it was more darkness. But that's not the story that the Bible tells. The story that the Bible tells is that 
once the light breaks, the king of light is going to reign forever. And he's going to be righteous. So as we come to Psalm 72 this morning, as we work our way through it, I want us to to embrace uh, two things. Uh, First, why we need this psalm. We need this psalm because we all want things to get better. I mean, we're, we're all engaged in various projects, whether they're uh, personal projects or projects where we're trying to engage the community or help other people or whatever. We all want things to get better. And this psalm is telling us things are going to get better, perfectly better. And then, and then secondly, I hope that what we'll see in this psalm is both how we should respond to what this text says and why we should trust Jesus more. So let's look together at Psalm 72. And as we approach it, right off the bat, we see something distinctive. And, and it's, the, it's the words that head Psalm 72, the words of Solomon. This is unique in the whole Psalter. This is the only Psalm that is headed this way of Solomon. And as we consider that, let me draw your attention to the last words of Psalm 72 in verse 20, where we read, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And then right below that, if your text is like mine, you'll find the words book three. So the 150 psalms of of the Psalter are divided up into these five books. And Psalm 72 is here at the end of book two. And I think the way we should interpret this of Solomon, complemented by the last words in verse 20 of Psalm 72, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, I think what we should think about here is that Psalm 72 is a prayer by David for Solomon. So if you were with us last week, you you may recall that I was talking about these troubles that David was having at the end of his reign, narrated in, in 1 Kings 1 and 2, where his son Adonijah tried to seize power, tried to seize the kingdom. And what David had to do was give instructions for Solomon to be anointed king over Israel because Solomon was the one whom the Lord had designated would be king after David. And so they, they put David or they put Solomon on David's own mule and they took him down to the Gihon Springs with the prophet and the priest and they anointed him king there. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, 1 Kings chapter 2, David gives instructions to Solomon uh, instructing him to basically that he needs to keep the law. He needs to obey Deuteronomy 17 and he needs to do justice by enforcing God's law in the land of Israel. And so if, if David instructs Solomon in 2 Kings chapter 2, in Psalm 72, it's like he prays for Solomon as he hands the throne off to Solomon. Uh, another couple of observations about where Psalm 72 is in the book of Psalms. Um, through the first two books, through Psalms 1 through 72, at various points, we'll have a psalm that will be like a historical reference point, a superscription that will allow us to locate where that psalm is in the history that's narrated for us in the book of Samuel. That never happens again now that we enter into book three. You never again get a, a historical piece of information that allows you to locate where this psalm should be understood in Israel's history. And, and the impression that creates is that in, in the first 72 psalms, We've worked our way through David's life, and now we've come to the end of David's life. And at this point, we're going to hand the Psalter off to the descendants of David, the sons of David. You do have 
psalms that are headed of David in, in books 2, 3, and 4. But those Davidic psalms, uh, they seem to be looking forward to a new king like David in the future, not pointing back to the historical David. So in Psalm 72, David is going to pray for Solomon. And the way that David prays is very instructive for us. Because David prays for God to do what God has promised to do again and again and again in this psalm. David prays for God to do what God has promised to do. And in this psalm, uh, you may remember when we, when we first started the book of Psalms at Kenwood Baptist Church, we looked at Psalms 1 and 2, and, and I suggested that Psalms 1 and 2 are, are introducing the whole book of Psalms. Uh, in Psalm 72, here at the end of book 2, David is going to reach back and he's going to pick up elements of both Psalms 1 and 2 to, to sort of serve as a, a bookend around this, around this whole material. So one instance of this, if you look down at uh, verse 17 of Psalm 72, where it says at the end of the verse, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. There's actually two different words for blessed there in Psalm 72, 17. And the second one, all nations call him blessed, is the same word for blessed in Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man. So, so Psalm 72, 17 is essentially telling us the future king from David's line is the blessed man of Psalm 1. The blessed man who meditates on the Torah day and night, and thereby the Lord gives him his own righteousness and justice. That's the man identified by Psalm 17, 72, 17. May all nations call him blessed. And then in Psalm 2, if you remember, uh, uh, the Lord says to the king from David's line there, he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And that worldwide rule is exactly what Psalm 72 Verses 8 through 11 is going to describe. Psalm 72, 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea. He's going to reign over all the earth. So Psalm 72 is reaching all the way back to the beginning and picking up that, that initial uh, first two psalms and, and sort of uh, forming a bookend around the whole first book of the Psalter by linking up with those statements. So look with me now at what David prays here in Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4. And um, as we consider this, you know, there are all kinds of contemporary um, realities swirling around us. Um, we have a presidential candidate that um, seems to have um, committed crimes uh, that are not being prosecuted. Uh, that's, that's injustice, isn't it? And then we have, we have uh, lots of people in this country who feel uh, that that the, the uh, administrators of justice, the, the lawmen, uh, do not treat them the way that they treat other people in the country. So, so there is a, lo a lot of perception of injustice, along with all the kids that are crying out, it's not fair. There's a lot of perception of injustice in the world today. And whatever you think about different people's claims about injustice, here in Psalm 72, David is praying for a day when justice will be perfectly administered. And that's a prayer that God's going to answer. Look at verse 1. David prays. And I think in the first instance, we can imagine him praying this for Solomon. 
But ultimately, this prayer is going to be realized in the Lord Jesus. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Give the king your justice and your righteousness to the royal son. Uh, Just to comment on these two terms, righteousness seems to be a characteristic of God himself. So within who he is as God, he always does what is right. And who he is determines what is right. As we interact with unbelievers, and if they complain about injustice or they complain about how Christians do wrong things, I think a valid question for them is, if, if you don't believe in God or if you don't embrace the teaching of Scripture, how do you determine what right and wrong are? On what basis do you even begin this conversation? Where, what are your complaints founded upon? For us, righteousness is a characteristic of God. It flows out of who God is. And then justice is the administration of the righteous character of God. And righteous judgment is the true application of God's character to some kind of decision, some kind of legal issue. And what David is saying essentially is, Lord, make the king image forth your character in the administration of laws, in the decision of legal matters. Give him your justice. Give your righteousness to the royal son. Uh, Notice how in the first line of Psalm 72.1, give the king your justice, and then perhaps thinking of the way that the king is his own son, uh, in the second line, your righteousness to the royal son or the son of the king. So it seems that David here is praying for Solomon. Everything else else in this psalm is going to flow out of verse 1. If the king has God's own justice, if the king knows God's righteous character and lives it out and applies it, and as a As a side note, all of us who are fathers leading families, this is what we need. We need God's righteous character. And we need to grow in our ability to apply God's righteous character and God's wisdom and justice in all the disputes that take place within our homes. The disputes between the children, the difficulties in knowing what decision to make with our wives. This is what we should pray for ourselves as well. God, give us your justice. Give me your righteous character. And then David says in verse 2, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This is a difficult thing, isn't it? Uh, We don't always know why the poor are poor. Sometimes they've been oppressed and wronged. Sometimes they've been lazy and they're scoundrels. And, And what David wants is for the king who comes after him, Solomon, to have God's righteousness and justice and be able to apply that to the poor. And then if the king will bring God's character to bear, creation will be blessed. The land will know the blessings of the covenant. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Now now consider this this imagery. Let the mountains bear, and the idea is that the mountains are going to pick up on their shoulders And then the word that's rendered prosperity here is the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that Hebrew term that that gets at uh, this all-encompassing goodness in life where everything in the world is right and true and flourishing 
and happy. So David is saying, when the king is judging righteously because he knows God and he, and he brings God's character to bear on all of these social issues, then it'll be like the mountains are lifting up on their shoulders shalom for the people to enjoy. And the hills in righteousness. So this is not, this is not because somebody has finagled a deal. It's not because somebody has uh, worked out a compromise. There's not, there's not political infighting and wrangling and there's not uh, a special interest getting their way. No, this is all done in righteousness, in truth, in the application of justice. And if you consider what this means, the mountains bearing shalom, it's almost like a return to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? And then verse 4. This is a very important statement. Uh, because the people that are going to be defended here, verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy. These are the people that don't have defenders. And not only do they not have defenders, they don't have connections. And people that don't have defenders and don't have connections are easy to exploit. And so before long, they wind up humbled and oppressed and afflicted. And so a king is not going to gain anything from these kind of people. The king stands nothing to gain. He's not going to gain political capital. He's not going to gain financial backers. He's probably going to lose political capital capital and lose politi uh, financial backers if he defends the people being oppressed uh, and being uh, exploited so that those wealthy and corrupt people are being enriched. But this is a king who's motivated by righteousness, not self-interest. And so David says, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And the word translated crush there is there, there's sort of a list of terms. There's a group of terms in Hebrew that are used across the Old Testament to refer back to the seed of the serpent and the serpent having being crushed or or defeated by the seed of the woman. So this is one of the words that refers back to Genesis 3:15. So essentially, it's like David is saying, Lord, bring Genesis 3:15 to bear on the serpent and all his seed through the king from my line. And, and we're going to get more uh, reference to, to that passage as we continue here. So Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4, David is praying for justice to be established. And, and I think it's important to note here that the kind of thing he's talking about is, is really the establishment of what we could call equality before the law. Everybody has equal access to the courts. Everybody has equal access to a fair decision. Everybody has equal access to legal uh, redress of their, of their complaints. That doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean equality of outcome, right? Some people are going to have more money than others. Some people are going to have uh, true claims and other people are going to have false claims. You understand what I'm saying here? Justice does not mean everybody's outcome looks exactly the same. Justice means everybody stands on the same level ground and everybody has the same access. So if you've, if you've felt that you've been wronged, if you've felt that your life has been unfair, or if you feel that you've seen injustice prevail, I would encourage you to consider Psalm 72 verses 1 through 4 
and to lay hold of this truth. Jesus is going to be a righteous judge. These prayers are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And he will judge righteously. So I would urge you to put your hope and your confidence and your trust in Jesus. And then, uh, Psalm 72, 1 through 4, it shows us that if we are godly, if we're like God, we will be concerned for social justice. I'm not necessarily talking about social justice the way the world talks about it, because their version of social justice is disconnected from the righteous character of God. We need to be concerned for a social justice that applies the righteous character of God. In verses 5 through 7, um, David is going to continue to pray for Scripture to be fulfilled. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, uh, the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan, he said, I'm going to establish the throne of the kingdom of your descendant forever. It's going to reign forever. Look at what David does with that information here in verse 5. He takes that promise and he, and he poetically reframes it and he prays it back to God. Verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures. Now did you hear what he did there? David is suggesting that if the king is righteous, the people as a result will fear God. Because if the king is righteous, the king is going to uphold God's righteous standard. And people are going to know that God doesn't overlook sin. People are going to know that God doesn't just let sin go. God punishes sin. So the people are going to know God because the king is righteous. May they fear you. God, David is praying to God. God, may they fear you because you've given your righteousness to the king. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the sun hangs in the sky. And then, as long as the moon, throughout all generations, he's saying, for as long as the world lasts, may the, the sanctifying effect of the king be known among the people. And then verse 6, this is really beautiful. May he, the king, be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Now, let's think about this imagery. Uh, why does grass and why does the earth need showers? Well, to, to have life, right? If it doesn't rain, we used to live in Texas, <clears throat> and by, by um, late June in Texas, all that stuff that was green in like May and April was brown. It was all dead because it didn't rain in Texas in the summer. The summer that Jill and I got married, there were, uh, 1998, there were 68 days in a row in Dallas, Texas, where the temperature was over 100 degrees. It was hot. It was hot and it was dry. It was, I mean, it, it was brutal. And it, everything was dead. The trees died, the grass died, everything died. <coughs> well, rain gives life, doesn't it? And this is a cultivated land because the grass is mown. I think what David is getting at as this symbiotic uh, relationship between a righteous king and the people that love being led by a righteous king. So the rain comes on the grass and the grass grows and then cultivators cut the grass and, and the pruning of this causes it to grow more 
and then the abundant showers fall. I, it's like how when um, I, I was watching the University of Houston play football yesterday, and the commentators were talking about how every one of those assistant coaches, they had a, they had a great season last season, every one of those assistant coaches had the opportunity to go elsewhere, and they all stayed. And the reason they stayed is because Tom Herman, the head coach at Houston, is so fun to work for. They all testified, we go to work and we have fun. We have fun because Coach Herman is such a great guy. And, and, and I, in, in God's providence, I had the opportunity to meet him, watch him in action. He's hilarious. He's a great guy to be around. He's got a great attitude. I saw one of his players last year, they came to uh, Louisville. And I had the opportunity to speak to them as a uh, sort of a chapel speaker on the night before the football game. And then we went to the game, and I saw one of his players get ejected. And the way that that coach, Tom Herman, responded to that ejected player, it's the kind of thing that, that makes players want to run through brick walls for their coaches. You, you just love this guy. I mean, I wanted to play for Coach Herman. I don't even want to play football. And I wanted to play for Coach Herman. He's a great guy. That's how Jesus is going to be. Jesus is going to be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers, that everybody's going to welcome his coming. Everybody's going to be glad to see him. It's going to be so wonderful when he reigns. And that's what David is praying for here. Verse 7, it just continues this. this verse 7 uses more of this agricultural imagery. In his days, may the righteous flourish. That word, behind, that word for flourish, that's a, that's a word that describes uh, sprouts of, of growth springing up and and these are righteous people who are they're growing like weeds under a righteous king in his days may the righteous flourish and then at the end of verse 7 David returns to that idea in verse 5 and peace abound till the moon be no more forever under his reign and again that word there for peace is this Hebrew word shalom this, this holistic goodness, may the shalom abound until the moon is no more. For as long as the world lasts, all creation is going to enjoy the blessings that God promised to his people. When God entered into a covenant with his people in, in, in uh, the Mosaic law, there were these blessings announced of the covenant. And essentially what's being said here is, Lord, bless your people with the blessings of the covenant because the king is so righteous. And then in verses 8 through 11, uh, this is remarkable what happens here. I think this is, this is stunning. Uh, right after we've seen these, these uh, statements that, that David prays for God to do what he promised to do in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, establish the throne of his kingdom forever, now David reaches back to Genesis 1, 28. And he essentially says, God the, the, the dominion over all creation that you gave to Adam, that Adam forfeited because of his sin, reestablish it now through the king that you've promised to raise up through my line. And, and he does that by saying here in verse 8, may he have dominion. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said, let them have dominion. And then Adam forfeits that dominion with the result that Satan is referred to even by the Lord Jesus himself as the ruler of this world, when he says in John 12, now is the ruler of this world cast out. And David is praying here, may the king from my line reestablish Adamic dominion. Do you know what David is praying for? David is praying 
that God would accomplish the purposes that he set out to achieve when he began to create the world through the king that he promised to raise up from his line. This is why the world exists. The world is in existence to be reigned over by the king from David's line. The world exists to have Jesus as its king. And David is praying, Lord, the world isn't the way you made it to be. The Davidic king is not reigning like he should. He doesn't have your righteousness, so make it so. I got a little bit ahead of myself. Um, I didn't give you the points of application from verses 5 through 7 so I, because I was so excited about verse 8. So let me, let, me, let me draw back for just a minute here. Um, and, and let me invite you to think again on that rain that falls on the mown grass. And um, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you're somebody who um, you hear me talking about righteousness and you don't like that because you know that if righteousness, if righteousness were to be established, what that would mean is all the stuff that you like, all the sin that you indulge yourself in and that you live for, all that's going to come to an end. What this means is the reign of Jesus is not going to make you happy. It's going to be unwelcome to you. And what we have to say to you is it is certainly coming. And you have the opportunity now to reorient your life so that you will want to welcome the coming of King Jesus. You will want him to reign. And we're, we're pleading with you that you would make that reorientation, that you would so reorder your priorities, your desires, and what you think of when you're asked the question, what is it that you live for? We, we want you to say, I'm living for the day when Jesus is going to reign because he's certainly coming back and he's certainly taking up the throne. And if you're here this morning and you do identify as a believer, we should all take stock of our hearts and where we are and what we're giving our time to. And we should ask ourselves, am I going to welcome the reign of King Jesus? Uh, that's, that's one part of your application. Here's the other part. Jesus will bless everyone under his reign. Everyone who is happily under the reign of King Jesus, everyone who has reoriented, reoriented their lives and trusted in Christ, they're going to be thrilled under his reign. You want to be among that crowd. Now, verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion, Adamic dominion, from sea to sea and from the river. So in, in the ancient Near Eastern uh, context, this is the river Euphrates, and it's thought of as sort of the heart of civilization. From the heart of civilization to the ends of the earth, may he have dominion all over the dry lands. From one water coast to the other water coast and all the dry land in between. And from the heart of civilization to its outermost reaches, may he reign over it all. At the end of verse 8 there uh, um, is quoted by the prophet Zechariah. And uh, this shows us that this psalm that David is praying of Solomon was easily applied to the line of kings that came from David. Because in Zechariah, right after he says in Zechariah 9.9, a, a verse that many of you are probably familiar with, behold, your king comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right after that, in verse 10, 
um, Zechariah uses this phrase from Psalm 72, verse 8, to say that this king is going to reign uh, from, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah quotes David's prayer to prophesy the reign of what we know to be King Jesus. And then what, do, what uh, David goes on to do is work out the implications of the king from his line reigning over all the lands. The implication is all kings everywhere are going to be subject to this king. So verse 9, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Uh, this phrase, may his enemies lick the dust, it picks up imagery from Genesis 3.14. You remember what God said to the serpent? He said, because you have done this on your belly shall you go and dust shall be your food. And now what David is saying is, Lord, make my descendant, the seed that you have promised will be king from my line, make him the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and make all his enemies the seed of the serpent because he's the seed of the woman and make all his enemies eat the food given to their father, the devil. So here's, here's where I said David is taking up the promises of God and he's praying them back to God. And, and David is also connecting the promises for us, isn't he? Because if it wasn't clear to us that the seed of the woman was going to be the one to bring about the blessing of Abraham, and that same individual would be the king from David's line who would reign forever, now it ought to be clear to us because David is bringing together all these promises for us from the Old Testament. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. So all these foreign kings, they're subject to the true king, and they're, they're, uh, they're doing uh, what, what uh, one author used for his book title when he, when he wrote of the kings, the kings come marching in. Here they come. And, and there's the nations are streaming to Zion, the way that Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 2. And they're bringing in the wealth of the nations to offer up tribute to the king from David's line. And it's comprehensive in verse 11. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. There will be no place where you can flee to escape the reign of King Jesus. So here's another point of application for you. Are you going to be somebody who is going to enjoy the everlasting shalom that the true king brings, or will you be licking the dust? Will you be eating the food that God promised the serpent he would eat? What, what, what do you want your destiny to be? Which one will it be for you? And, and here's, you know, your point of application, trying to point you to Jesus. Jesus is going to reign over all. That's what these verses say. He's going to reign everywhere, and he's going to be worthy. Verses 12 through 14 teaches us that Jesus will be worthy. This is not a king who neglects his responsibilities, who fails to attend to justice, or who uses his power to increase his own luxury and comfort. Look at verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Again, these are people that can't help him, that he can't be enriched by, that he will gain no social capital by helping. But he... He delivers them, and the reason he delivers them 
is because he understands their plight. He sees their anguish, and he responds to them with an appropriate heart of compassion that can actually help them. Look at what we read there in verse 13. He has pity on the weak and the needy. You know, a lot of people feel pity, and they try to help, and it just makes things worse. Not Jesus. Jesus feels pity. He feels compassion for the weak and the needy. And look at what verse 13 goes on to say. He saves the lives of the needy. When he intervenes, he doesn't increase their dependence and, and ruin their ability to help themselves. No, he saves their lives. He actually helps. And he does so by what verse 4 said. He crushes the oppressor, verse 14, from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. And I think at the end of verse 14, David may be implicitly confessing his own sin. You remember David, uh, we know from 2 Samuel, to be the kind of king that when he got himself into a difficult spot, the lives of his, his people were expendable. And if he needed to put Uriah to death, and if it cost him the blood of a few soldiers, well, that's what he needed to try to cover up what had happened back home with Bathsheba. But not this king. Look at verse 14 at the end. Precious is their blood in his sight. This is not a king who's just going to use people. This is a king who's not a hard-hearted ruler. This is a king in whose eyes the blood of nobodies will be precious. So from verses 15 through 17... I'm sorry, from verses 12 through 14 here, we see that Jesus is a compassionate king. That's another reason to trust him, isn't it? He's compassionate. He's he's merciful. He has a heart of love and pity. And the question for us is, are you going to be delivered by this king? Or is he going to crush you when he comes? You know, we want to be frank with you. Identifying with Jesus is it very well could wind up in you being one of the oppressed. It, it, it very well could bring about a situation where you are now humbled and abused by an unjust society. And he's going to deliver such people when he comes. Are you going to be among the delivered? Or will you be among the oppressors? Will you be among the ones whose face will be on the ground and they will be licking the dust? We see in verses 18 through 20, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 17 here, the way that Jesus is going to make his people rejoice forever. Look at verse 15. Long may he live. This is another another, uh, application of that promise of 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Why would people respond this way to the king? They would respond this way to the king because they love him. So they pray for him. They, he is so good that he makes them want to give everything to him. And so the gold of Sheba is brought to him. Verse 16, again we see the righteous king bringing about the blessings of the covenant in verse 16. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. So it's like the land is so fertile that the corn is waving, even in places where corn's not supposed to grow. 
on the tops of mountains. And, and, and the, right, the blessing of the land is, is also like the blessing of the people. May the people, at the end of verse 16, blossom in the cities. Once again, the righteous are flourishing under the reign of this good king, like the grass of the field. Verse 17, uh, David, again, he prays something from um, 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, David, the Lord said to David through Nathan the prophet, I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And that's picking up Genesis 12, where um, the Lord swore to Abraham, I'm going to give you a great name. And then he tells David, I'm going to make your name great. And now David takes those promises and he prays them for his, his greater son. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. And then the last, uh, the last line of verse 17 here is why we had the Old and New Testament readings that we had. Those Old Testament readings, um, the Lord says to Abraham, I will bless all the nations in you and in your seed. And, and then the New Testament reading identifies Jesus as the seed of Abraham in whom the nations are blessed. And this is what David is praying for here in verse 17. May people be blessed in him. What this means is that the seed of the woman is going to conquer the seed of the serpent and thereby bless the nations. And it means that everybody that dishonors Abraham, who's cursed by the Lord, everybody that, that is with Abraham, who's blessed by the Lord, they're going to be with the seed of Abraham, who is now identified as the seed of David, and from the New Testament identifies as Jesus. And, and so what we see here, what we see is that uh, Jesus is going to be the true king who's going to fill the world with God's glory. Look at verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the, the God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. If we ask what wondrous things, I think the wondrous things he's talking about all through the psalm are what he has in view. The remaking of the world as an Eden. We defiled it for sin. We got cast out of God's presence. Jesus is going to cleanse the world. He's going to make it a new Eden. He's going to make it so that everybody that followed him has access to the presence of God. It's a wondrous thing. All these promises across the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled. Verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory because the righteous king will have brought God's justice to bear on all creation and subjected all enemies and defeated all oppressors and crushed the head of the serpent and lifted up the downtrodden. He'll have done it. So are you going to be one who joins in this doxology? Verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Or are you going to be one who hates God, who hates his goodness because it ruins your life because it takes away all your trinkets. Who are you going to be? Jesus is going to fill the world with God's glory. Last question that's getting at application here. What do you pray for? Do you pray for this? This is what God's going to do. This is what David prays for. You know what prayer does for us? It trains our hearts. It trains our hearts to long for the right things. 
That's why we ought to pray. That's why we ought to pray Scripture. Because we don't want our hearts trained to pray for things that God has not promised to do for us. So many of us, we pray for things, and we're praying for things that have nothing to do with the promises of God. We ought to pray for what God has promised because we ought to want what God wants. And I think this is what John is talking about in places like 1 John where he says, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we can be certain that we have what we ask from him. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying for what God has promised to do through Jesus. It's like what David is praying for here. Jesus is going to fill the world with God's glory. Jesus is going to satisfy everyone's longing for justice. So Psalm 72 is this soaring prayer, this pinnacle of Old Testament theology that communicates Old Testament hope as David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, calls on the Lord to keep his promises. And along the way, as he prays, David is interpreting the relationships between the various promises that God has made. And he's showing us what God is going to do and how he's going to do it. It's going to come about through the king from his line. And the crystallization of all this promise and hope in the poetry of Psalm 72 appropriately resolves into this doxology at the end of Psalm 72, which is also at the end of book two of the Psalms. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that even here in Louisville, you would be about the work of filling the earth with your glory. And we pray, Father, that you would be doing it as we seek to obey Jesus and make disciples of all nations. Lord, we pray that you would give us success in this. We pray that you would prosper our efforts. We pray that you would give us good rulers, that the righteous might flourish, that the gospel might go forth. We pray, Father, that you would accompany our announcement of the good news that you are going to conquer evil and death and sin through Christ, that you have accomplished that through his work on the cross, that he's coming back to put it into place. Lord, we pray that you would cause the Holy Spirit to give life to people who hear this message from us. And we pray, Father, that you would renovate this corner of Louisville. We pray that you would make this not a place where crack houses flourish, but a place where people love your word. Lord, we pray that the gospel would go forth and that it would be like green grass meeting the showers that fall abundantly on the earth. Lord, we pray that you would give living water to these efforts. And we pray that you would make your name great and cause us to be righteous and holy and welcome the reign of King Jesus. We ask that you do it all in his name by the power of your spirit that your glory might fill the earth. Amen.